Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to entertain myself, meet people that I know or have heard a lot about, as in the case of my guest today, or just visit with some of my friends. Um, this has been an amazing journey, and it's so nice of you all to send me feedback about the webinars. I think I'm enjoying them at least as much as you are because it's just so exciting to talk to all these people around the world that have such great information. A lot of them are not computer savvy, and so they're sitting in their little own Idaho and working away, and, um, and this way I kind of drag them out of the closet, <laughs> get them out to the world. Um, we're Bob Bowker, we finally scheduled Bob Bowker to come back. That's gonna be on October 8th. I'm so excited. I, Bob's had a really rough summer, um, but he's coming back. And so be sure to sign up for that. If you go to the MurdochMethod.com website, to the shop, to the webinars at Wendy, you'll see him there and you can start signing up for that one. Um, just one thing to note, when you guys sign up for the webinars now, um, they show up and then I just complete them and that's when you get the email with the link. So it really isn't, um, as long as I make sure I do that before the webinar starts, you're good. But sometimes like I might be away in my garden or over visiting my horses. And so you might not get the link straight away. So just be patient as long as uh, it happens before the webinar, you're good. So today my guest is Jillian Crimebring, and we're so excited that she's back. Um, it's been a little bit of a drama getting this webinar scheduled, and this is our, our third attempt, so three times a charm. Um, but we did, and you don't have thunderstorms, and I don't have thunderstorms. So it's great. Um, as, oh, as always, if you want to ask any questions, just pop them in the chat or put them in the Q&A, and then I'll ask Jillian in the appropriate moment during her webinar. So welcome, Jillian. Thank you so much for hanging in there. Oh, thank you. So. I, I don't want to complain too much about the rain because we were so dry. So I'm sorry that we had to reschedule again, but I'm very grateful for the rain that we got. So. It broke the heat here in Texas for a little bit anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting weather. In uh, August, we got over eight inches of rain and our normal rainfall is three inches. So we're drowning a bit and you, uh, you know, I wish we could send it to California, but um, yes. not so possible. Yeah, so Jillian, just in case there's someone watching this, especially on YouTube that doesn't know your background, can you just briefly um, kind of say how you wound up where you, where you are and what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, I uh, grew up uh, on a horse farm in Iowa. My parents were uh, horse traders and we did a lot of trail riding and we just really enjoyed our horses. Um, when I was a young child, I lived on my pony. Um, <clears throat> and then a little later on in my youth, my dad uh, found himself being an, a stallion owner. So then suddenly we had brood mares and then we had lots of babies. And when I was eight years old, we started to market those babies by uh, competing them and, and showing them in quarter horse and paint horse circuits and the American Stock Horse Association and so forth. And uh, so that kicked off my show career and I showed and I loved it. And I had some of the most amazing mentors along the way that just really instilled an amazing work ethic in terms of not being a fair weathered horse person. And I was just obsessed with all things horses. Um, <clears throat> went to college uh, on my father's advice. 
uh, to get a degree so that I could afford my horse hobby when I got older. Um, the day after I graduated from college, I accepted a head training position in Germany of all places. Right, yeah. So I packed up my bags and moved to Germany and uh, worked there for uh, two years and um, was there that I was introduced to um, good solid foundation uh, dressage work. And that was my first um, awareness that things could be done differently in terms of doing it for the horse and not for me and my ego, so to speak. And I started to really question a lot of my training practices, um, training practices that were being implemented so that I could meet a demand in the show ring to train horses to meet a trend so that you could be competitive. Um, and so I, I knew then at, at a pretty young age that I wanted to do something different, or I wanted to do it differently, but I had no clue what that looked like. So I moved back to the States and I, it, my goal was to go to graduate school. And I knew that I wanted to study something about horses, but I didn't yet have a primary focus. Um, I needed to establish residency in the state of Wisconsin because I was originally from Iowa. So I lived there for a year and I did the one thing that I knew how to do to make a living. And that was train horses. And, uh, and during that time I had a riding accident. I broke my leg and I broke my back. And um, that was, it's funny that I would say it this way, but it was a gift because it was a, a major transformational moment in my life. Um, and it really wasn't until that moment that I really started to learn about horses. Horses as a species. Horses as other sentient beings. And I realized I really didn't know anything at the ripe old age of 23, even though I thought, of course, that I knew everything. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a huge gift. And so that's what uh, set me um, on my path to studying functional anatomy at the university. Um, because I realized that if I wanted to, to train horses in a way that was best for them, I needed to understand their scaffolding or, or their body so that I could be educated about how I was asking horses to perform certain movements in a way that <clears throat> not only mentally made sense to them, but that they could physically do so. Because I realized I was asking horses to always work against their mechanism in my prior um, work with them. And so the study of functional anatomy helped me understand how to work horses in a way that took them to their highest and best, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And, um, and that's what has taken me to, to teach what I teach now. And my learning will never stop. I'm amazed and humbled every day at how little I still know. Uh, that's the sign of someone who actually knows, I think, you know, is that we realize we don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I just want to bang my head against the door like, oh, what a big hole in your education you have there. 
Um, but it's, it's wonderful. And everything that I, I teach or present today or any time I teach or any teacher for that matter, it's always truth for the moment. Yep. You know, I've learned already so much through your webinars that, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I can add this or I need to change this because maybe that wasn't quite 100% spot on, you know, so that, that makes it, it, it really challenging and, um, and humbling in, in that it keeps bringing me back to beginner's mind, which I, I love Right. And I think I think it's the willingness that uh, the willingness to be able to recognize that our truth of yesterday may not still be our truth of today. And that as we gain more knowledge and information, we need to be able to be willing to uh, reshape that, you know, and recognize there's there's something else. Maybe we didn't see it before or maybe it's it adds depth to what we know and um so i you know i i've forgotten because i've talked to so many people on the webinars how close our stories are and that my accident was when i was 27 um and i was getting a master's degree we're starting to work on no i was at, getting my master's at the time and um i was going to get a doctorate in equine biomechanics with james rooney at university of kentucky but met Linda Tellington Jones and we just had her for my 100th webinar which was really fabulous and one of the things that was so trippy is that after my webinar with Linda uh, on Facebook it popped up that it was six years ago to the day September 2nd when I showed her Surefoot and it oh, was I know God. September 2nd that we had the webinar so I just think that was yeah so strange but but yes, you know, like I remember too that when I had my accident, I already knew it was a gift, even though it was a, as you know, the recovery is, um, takes years and actually it's, it's a continual process. I'm still recovering from that accident. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I'm working on the scar because I'm realizing how much that's pulling on the fascia because the scar um, is a, called a Mercedes incision. It's a Y and one of the bars is over six inch. They went in laterally to my hip because I had to get to the hip socket and put in the three pins to put the socket wow. back together. And so the more I learn about fascia, the more I'm like, I gotta work with this scar. And so I'm been um, doing um, some interesting things. Um, I've been using Moxa and I've been using this um, silicone. Uh, it, um, it's silicone that's got like a gel embedded in it, like with, um, vitamin E and I it like if I do kinesio tape it's too much it it throws the my my knee blows up because there's too much change but this silica stuff it's really fascinating and it just it's like a gentle um kinesio tape it's really kind of interesting yeah I don't know how you'd use that on horses but I can send you a link anyway <laughs> you and I could go on forever <laughs> before we get, we get started I just have to share this about Linda Tellington Jones, because she's one of my heroes. I think she's just someone who's been so ahead of the time and has revolutionized the world. Yeah. Essentially about how we, we think about the world. But on my trip to Germany after college, I got that job offer the day after I graduated. And I was sitting on a plane and this man sat next to me. And his name was Alan Weingrad. And you know, I was just this little greenhorn, new to everything in the world, bright-eyed, scared to death. And he could tell I was a little nervous. So we sat down to me, this was obviously pre-9-11, on the plane. And, and he struck up a conversation with me. And I told him what I was doing, going to Germany to train horses. 
And he says, have you ever heard of a woman named Linda Tellington Jones? And I said, no. And at that time, I'd never heard of her. And he said he, that he was, had just finished working with the whale from Free Willy, that movie Free Willy, yeah. with Linda Tellington Jones. And he was incorporating Feldenkrais into the Harvard Law School. And so just by fate, I had this brief interaction that just stuck in my mind. And then you know how the universe works. One thing layers on top of another thing. And then years later, boom, she, she becomes and Feldenkrais becomes this huge, cool thing in my life. So I thought you might wow. appreciate yeah. that weird connection. Yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So, so awesome. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I thought that maybe I would do just a very brief recap of the, the uh, hyoid and, and then move further into the horse's body and look at the horse's um, atlanto-occipital joint. What it is and, and, and its importance to lateral flexion um, and vertical flexion at the pole. To just Great. try to demystify that because um, we, we need to look at the hyoid, hyoid first because if those structures are not released, we won't be granted access to this very sacred joint. So I thought I'd start there and move to the joint. I won't make it too complicated, but I'll just give the basic A, B, C, and D. And um, hopefully that will give folks an opportunity to think about what they're affecting when, when they put a cavasson or a halter or a bitless bridle, a hackamore or a bridle on their horse. And that it's that joint that is so necessary um, for horses to use correctly so that the horse can truly bend correctly throughout its body. So, so Jillian, before we get started, people are hearing a high-pitched feedback. Um, uh, let me, let me, is it okay if I just check something real quick? Yeah, yeah, because I hear it too. Okay. I don't think it might be out in the barn. Good. Oh. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> that better? Yeah, what was it? The Zumba. No, the the, the little round oh. vacuum thing. Yeah. The Zumba? Yeah. Zumba. Roomba. Yes! <laughs> Zumba's the dance. Zumba's the dance <laughs> and Zoom is the meeting, but I get where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> dyslexic all over the place wow okay well that's great that really made yeah because i was like i was i didn't want to interrupt you but thank you thank you for bringing that up um, absolutely and and jillian i just wanted to say that katherine wyckoff who is a feldenkrais practitioner and um she's trained at ut tennessee in equine rehab we don't call it physical therapy because anyway um she's going to be doing a webinar 
this coming week looking at the nerves that are the vagal and the trigeminal nerve in the horse's head. So that's why I just want to let you know because that's all tying in and I'm kind of setting these up in a bit of an order right now because um, we've got Sharon on Monday and then uh, Catherine, I think it's Wednesday or Thursday. So yeah, cool. I love to geek, I love to geek out on that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Okay, so I, I do have a, a, a PowerPoint. Great. Um, so that would be probably the easiest thing to just throw that up and we can rock and roll. Super. Thank you, Wendy. I'll just see if I, I just, I will try Facebook one more time here because it's frustrating me. <laughs> well, I think that is so cool that you're gonna follow up with the nerves. Because, of course, <clears throat> I'm simply talking about skeletal um, mechanism. I'm not talking about the muscles or the nerve innervation. And so we're just looking at one piece of the pie. You know, it's just one sliver of a greater whole. So I think, you know, nothing operates without the nervous system. So it's, it's great that you're going you're gonna to have that webinar. Yeah, I, I, I keep wanting to sort of draw the threads together and start to make a fabric, so. Yeah. So you go ahead whenever you're ready. I'm just gonna see if, I'm just gonna keep messing with the idea of trying to get this up on Facebook one more time. Is there some way, do I hit share screen? Yep, you hit share screen at the bottom. And okay. then you get to pick your thumbnail and. I see it. Very good. There we go. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah. So <clears throat> in my functional anatomy course, I, I teach about this very topic. <clears throat> this uh, particular um, PowerPoint that we're going to, to look at today is one that I put together for Equine Affair. And then I've added a few things to it. So in case somebody in the audience went to Equine Affair, this will be a review um, with some added little bonuses. So um, we're going to be looking at the horse's pull. And we're going to look at why the horse's pull can be um, an inroad or a gateway to relaxation. Um, and it's so important to understand uh, the anatomy behind the, the pull and the importance of the motion that takes place here. You have to click on your, yeah, PowerPoint, and then you can fast forward. So, ah, got it. Thank yep. you. Yep. So in the hyoid uh, lecture that we did a couple months ago, I started off with a passage that I had written for Mark uh, Russell's uh, revision of his book and I and I put it up here again because um, the connections throughout the body are just mind-blowing and and we again are just talking about the skeletal mechanisms as well as some of the muscles so I thought I would just read this passage again um, as as a reminder the writer's mind affects his body and his hands. The rider's body and hand affects the reins. 
The reins affect the bit. The bit affects the tongue. The tongue affects the hyoid. The hyoid affects the temporal hyoid and the temporomandibular joints. The temporal hyoid and temporomandibular joints affect the atlanto-occipital joint. The atlanto-occipital joint allows for soft lateral flexions. Through these gateways of relaxation, the rider educates the horse's mind and body. The journey of sculpting the horse with mental and physical wellness begins. This is the essence of artful and academic riding. Be in love with the process. Excerpt from Mark's book. So we're gonna look at those connections with a little bit more detail. We could go on for weeks about all the intricacies. So we're just going to build the scaffolding and an outline today. Oops, there we go. Okay, so last time, we spent um, our session talking about the hyoid. So I just wanted to revisit the hyoid apparatus because oftentimes when you read about the hyoid, they talk about it as just being this one structure, but it's actually several bones um, articulated together and it's then referred to as an apparatus. The hyoid is a set of bones that, that lie in between the branches of the horse's jaw and hangs from the base of the skull. So once I go through this slide, I'll pull up the skull and I'll bring up the hyoid bone again just as a review. The hyoid is a super important mechanism because it supports and it suspends and it provides alignment for the horse's larynx, uh, the horse's pharynx, and the horse's tongue during breathing and swallowing. And I use the word alignment uh, very judiciously here because if any of these structures are off kilter, oftentimes because of uh, poor dental work or uh, unbalanced TMJs or hypertoned muscles, that alignment in that hyoid apparatus can throw the entire alignment of the horse's vertebral column off. And we're gonna look at that connection again um, as we progress along with the talk. So how that apparatus hangs within the horse's skull does absolutely play a role in a horse's symmetry. Uh, the hyoid is composed of uh, a set of five delicate bones connected um, by joints and soft tissue. So in this graphic, uh, you can see uh, the hyoid um, and the hyoid has two long strapping muscles and those are called the stylohyoids. Those stylohyoids are what go up and they connect to the base of the horse's skull at the temporohyoid joints. Then when you look at the bottom of the hyoid apparatus, you have these two parallel bones that connect to the stylohyoids, and those are called the serratohyoid bones. 
then those bones connect directly to the part of the hyoid that I think looks like a spur, like a clip-on spur that you stick on the back of your boot. And that, that the, the combination of those bones, um, the two that project backwards, those are called the thyrohyoid because they support the thyroid. And then you have the basihyoid that connects to the serotohyoids. And then you have this projection from the front of that, which is the lingual process. And that is the part of the hyoid bone that is actually embedded in the horse's tongue, which absolutely always blows my mind. So here I have the hyoid bone, okay, a, a real hyoid bone, and it's very delicate. You can see that there's not a whole lot of substance to the bone. It's, it's actually quite fragile. This long strap-like bone, this is the oh. stylo. Can you, can you unshare your screen so we can see that clearer? Oh, absolutely. So just go to stop share. Yep, go to stop share. And then I'll okay. make um, spotlight you so it's nice and big and we can really see it. Yeah, oh, great. <laughs> That's weird, now I can see myself. Okay, so this is, this is the, the hyoid. This long bone here, there's two of them, a pair of them. Those are the stylohyoids. Okay, they're very delicate and very fragile. Here, in front, you have two, uh, well, I have um, two pieces of metal here that are in place for the serotohyoid bones because when I got this hyoid, these bones were not there. So we had to very cleverly find a way to connect those with a piece of wire, which is not easy, okay? Then when I turn the hyoid this way, you can see the spur portion, okay? This connecting bone right here, that's the basihyoid bone. These two projections here are the thyrohyoid components of the apparatus. And this part here, that is the lingual process. So the lingual process, this component here, is what's embedded in the base of the horse's tongue, okay? So if I grab the skull, I'm just gonna grab the, the upper yep. part of the skull, and I might have to scoot back here, okay? If you look internally, We have the petrosal bone here, and we have the petrosal bone here. These petrosal bones are articulated with the stylohyoids, and that joint is the, um, is the temporal hyoid joints. So when the hyoid is connected, it connects to those joints, and it hangs, within the horse's skull, okay? And then the lingual process is embedded in the horse's tongue. And it kind of acts like a little swing, okay? So that is a review of the bony structure of the hyoid and how it articulates to the petrosal bones inside the horse's skull. 
Now, just again, as a quick review, this petrosal bone, if you look at it more closely, you'll see that there's a little hole right here. That little hole is the external auditory meatus. And the, the, all of the mechanisms for the horse's vestibular inner ear lives within that area. So now you can see that the hyoid, which is connected to the tongue directly, now is connected to the skull, particularly to their vestibular system, an area that is just so richly innervated with, with proprioceptors and the organs that dictate the horse's overall balance. So you can already see that by having a bridle or a halter or a cabas on, on the horse is already speaking directly to these tiny little structures within the head that dictates where the horse is in time and space. So we are influencing that horse every single time we put our hands on his head, okay? Now, let's revisit the, um, basi hyoid component again of, of the hyoid. Again, the basi hyoid is this little bone right here. Now what's important to understand about that component of the apparatus is that it has two muscular attachments that blow my mind. One is the muscle called the sterno hyoid muscle. So what that simply means is that that little bone is where a muscle is attached that then travels down and attaches to the horse's sternum. So suddenly now you have a direct attachment to the horse's sternum. Tongue, hyoid, petrosal bone, hyoid, sternum. There's another muscle there called the omohyoid and that uh, travels down the neck, the base of the neck, and it attaches under the subscapular fascia of the scapula. So now you also have a muscle that is connected directly to the hyoid, to the base of the tongue, that is directly attached to the horse's shoulder joint. So you can start to see just how complicated and intricately and intimately all these structures are attached. I've, I've always so, known that there's the connection from the hyoid to the shoulder and to the sternum, but I didn't realize it was coming off the basi hyoid bone. Yeah. I didn't realize Isn't it was on the hyoid. So it's very close to the base of the tongue because that's where the lingual process is. Absolutely. So this so could when explain, I, was I just, sorry, sorry, I'm just geeking out here. This yeah. could explain why when I put horses on surefoot pads, we see all this stuff happen with their tongue, they, their tongues, they yawn, they move their tongues around, they'll, they'll do all kinds of stuff with their tongue because we're coming straight up through the leg to the sternum and the shoulder and right up to the base of the tongue. Cool. So Isn't that cool. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and like when I was watching Hillary's uh, talk on bits, yeah. I was totally geeking out because when she was talking about how some horses will fold their tongue up to buffer the, the bit against the palate, well, you're depressing the hyoid. That's right. So if you, if you press your tongue down, you can feel yeah. the tightness travel 
all the way down. <clears throat> so as I, as I geek along here, <laughs> and we get to, to the, the, the other incredibly important joint that I'm not going to spend time talking about today, but it's, it's, it's like the joint, and that's the TMJ. Right. right? So if you, if you have a horse that's buffering itself because of bit of the bit, you're already affecting the TMJ. You're already affecting the sternum. You're already affecting the shoulders. You know, and I don't know. Well, this is so important because most people think that a single jointed bit is the kindest bit and, and they don't realize it has the little, I don't know if you can see the little ears that I'm making with my fingers, but they have the little ears. Now what Hillary didn't show, I'm, I just want to throw this in because I know you're going to want to go look it up. What she didn't show was she had live fluoroscopy of the horse's mouths while they were experimenting with doing the experiment with the bit. So you can actually watch the horse move his tongue oh, wow. on the videos. And I'll have to find the links for those. But what you realize is that he's trying to prevent that joint from jamming into his palate. And so they, they do all kinds of things. But, you know, so many people and especially in the Western world, they think that a single jointed snaffle is the kindest, but a lot of horses with a low palate, those little ears are going to get jabbed and then they're going to start doing stuff with their mouth to try and avoid the little, what, what Hillary calls the rabbit ears. And so, you know, in the dressage world, a lot of people have moved to like the KK Ultra with the, the link in the middle that's the lozenge that's round to avoid yeah. those little ears but it hasn't that type of bit has not and i'm maybe you can um speak to this a little bit but has not found its way into the western disciplines they go from a snaffle into either a bozelle or a, a shanked bit you know a curb with a curb but you know there there's so many horses out there in in a plain single jointed snaffle that probably are a lot are not very comfortable. Yeah, I, I would so agree. If when my horses get fussy in the mouth, it freaks me out because I know too much now about <laughs> the, the connections and also about what it's doing to the nervous system. Right. So we know when people are anxious, we clamp our jaws, and it's a it's a sure sign that we're operating more in the sympathetic system. But if, if our jaws are soft and released and our tongues are soft in our own mouths, we are operating more in the parasympathetic system, which of course lends itself to us learning. Uh, right. Even in school now, they're allowing kids to chew gum um, while they really? take their exam because they have noticed that they score higher. And that's because you want all of these mechanisms to be soft. So that's kind of where we're going with this is that if, if these structures are soft, and this is why it's a relax, this is a gateway to relaxation. If you can teach the horse that the bit is simply an aid for relaxation. Right. I found yeah, the link, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually, um, <laughs> I know, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'll send it, I'll, I'll post it up here in the chat. I have to send it over to my computer to post it in the chat, but I can do this. That's cool. <laughs> what, now, what process did you call it? A 
it's fluoroscopy. In fact, you know what? I can share screen this really quickly once it gets over here because I think when you see this, it's gonna it gives people. I know we're a little off topic, but I don't think anybody really minds. Um, anybody minds? They can put it up in the chat, and we're gonna tell you it, we don't care. <laughs> okay. So um, this is on. Okay, come on, come up, come up. I've I've got it over here. I'm waiting for it to come up. Okay, keep going a bit. As soon as I get it working, oh, wait, okay. here it is. I got it. Now I just got have it. to make it like not on my little. I need to make it not on my. Um, it's in my. I can't make it big. Oh wait, there. Just trying to make it big. Okay, keep going, and I'll get this sorted out, and then. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll I'll go back to to how the hyoid connects to the skull. So the, the oh, hyoid connects I've, to the I've got skull. it. Sorry, sorry, I've got it. I didn't realize I had it. Okay. So this is this is um, Dr. Clayton did fluoroscopy studies. And um, what that oh, means no. is this is live video. They set up an experiment. And um, I'm just going to pause it here for a second. And you can see the little rabbit ears right here on the snaffle bit. And yeah. so this is live video. Um, Okay, go back. Wait, oh yeah, there's more. Um, and they, what they were experimenting with is different bits in this buckle. They needed a marker. So, you know, when you see some of the stuff, you have to realize this is an experiment and they're having to um, have markers that are going to show up, right? But here is, this is a different bit. And you can see, this is more, I think of a Myler type. Yep, because you can see the shanks and you can see the, the horse mouthing. So, so when, when we talk about bits and um, watching the horse and what's going on, they've literally, you know, had the picture inside the horse's mouth um, wow. using this study. It was, it was very cool. And this is actually pretty old stuff now. Um, but they, they wanted to, you know, look at the effects. And the thing that was um, so interesting was the, the, see there, I'm just going to pause oh, that because you yeah. can see see if I can get it to come forward a little bit. No, it's not going to. Yeah, there's the little rabbit ears on the snaffle yes. bit. And here's the horse's palate. And so, you know, if, if somebody took little pokey bits and tapped you in the palate, you would not be happy. And so this horse has retracted his tongue. And basically what the, you know, they're trying to like, like push against the bit as best I, I, I if you can help me from watching Hillary's um, webinar, but they're, you know, they're like pushing on that bit to try and keep it from banging around. Um, wow. And then we're trying to half halt them off the bit all the time. Right. And so this horse has retracted his tongue. So now when you think about the connection of what's happening in the mouth with that tongue retracting, yeah, tongue over the bit, um, and how the base of the tongue is the lingual process, which is part of the hyoid, right? So now he's got his tongue going over the bit, oh, right? Over. And you can see there's the little rabbit ears on that snaffle. Um, and so it, it's really important that we um, don't just simply do what someone else has done because that's the way it's always been done. It's really important that we examine what we are doing with the knowledge that we now have. And I think, um, Jillian, you would totally agree with that is, you know, we're so often it's like, you know, well, that's the, that's the bit I was told to use because that's the bit everybody uses, right? right. And like, um, 
Wow, that, that was, that's incredible. Yeah, so um, I, can, I can post, I'll post that link in the chat. Um, oh my gosh, thank you so much. That, yeah. it, it just drives home. I mean, think about how much that horse is doing with the tongue and, and that cannot be parroted or, or, or peeled away from, from the hyoid. Right. right. So then, see, I'm getting excited now. My, I'm, yeah, I, know. I knew you'd love that. And it's, I was so glad I could find it fast because, <laughs> you know, it's like if the horse is doing that, if we did that with our tongue, it's affecting our hoyer, it's affecting our TMJ, it's going to affect our proprioception. And so, you know, it's, um, and you have the extremes, and I'm going to get on my little where's the middle horse here right now, you know, between the people that say all nose bands are bad and the people that are tightening nose bands too tight. And I always say where's the middle, because the purpose of a nose band is to limit how much the horse opens his mouth, which if he's gaping his mouth, now he's going to his TMJ and all the stress is being put up on his TMJ. And the whole reason we created nose bands in the first place was to keep horses from breaking their jaws when we were jumping them. Mm -hmm right? And so we limited how much they can open their mouth so we don't damage their TMJ, but now everybody's decided nose bands are bad and we've gone to the other extreme where we don't limit and now we have all this stuff happening in the mouth, which the longer it takes for the message to get through, the more the horse is lear not learning what you want. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is, this is where I always go, go to. If my horse is gaping his mouth, the very first question should always be, why? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It should just always be, why, why is that happening? As Linda Tellington Jones would say, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. like, that's interesting. Like, so why is that happening? And yep. again, for me, that's why I like to go to functional anatomy. Why is the horse doing this? Right? Uh, the this the school of osteopathy i mean they, they do a ton with the palate because they see all different kinds of trauma happening there that affects the whole system the visceral system the the circulatory system i'm not an osteopath but an osteopath could talk ad nauseum about it right. um and, and, and probably one of the biggest disclaimers I have to say, just put it out on the table, is, is that so much of this healthy functioning is not possible if you don't, if you have bad teeth on a horse. Yeah. That's not my specialty, but it, if you don't have a, a balanced mouth and yeah. a balanced TMJ, all of these structures will be off. Like if, if you think about every single tooth, my, my friend Elizabeth always has taught me every tooth is a joint. Is that Elizabeth's innervated. boss? Yes. I got to you get know, back to her. <laughs> yeah, because she, she, she does osteopathy with dental, so it's, it's just, it's like mind-blowing. Um, the little joke she always says to me all the time, she's like, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? And I'm thinking in my head, no, I don't. <laughs> You're like so ahead of me. Because she, she just has so much information floating around in her noodle, you know? Yeah. So... Anyway, Can I just say one, so one last thing is that, um, so years ago I was at the center driving annual meeting and Joyce Harmon and I were there and we were doing a demonstration using the pressure pad with the, dating myself, with the, with the old, old pressure pad. And 
I clipped my horse because he was so thick in his coat for the demo, which was in November. And I, you know, right. And so I clipped him and then I put a wool blanket on for the first saddle, which was a Western saddle. Well, his mouth was super, super busy. And everybody came up at the end to tell me all the things I should do to solve this problem. But what no one realized was that I gave him rug burn with the first saddle pad. <laughs> and so all of the stuff happening in his mouth was a result of the rug burn. The hair was just all burned. And so not you, when you ask why, the, question, the answer may not always be in the mouth. The answer may be somewhere else. And so it's, it's really important to keep the question open as to why and not just instantly think that it's a bit problem. Exactly. Yeah. And we have all of this, this language in our, um, in our, in our dialogue about above the bit, uh, uh, chomping at the bit. Those are not things that we're really looking for, but we're looking for the, the saying of savoring the bit, right? Oh, that's great. It's, like that. it's like something that you're eating, like, oh, oh my God, that's, mm, that's so good, right? That's how that horse should. And then by, by that, he's releasing his TMJs. He's not chomping. He's not nervously, you know, anxious. As Linda, again, would say, a horse in sympathetic would be fidgety. Fidgety, 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 chomp, 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 chomp. Very different than savor, savoring. So, so educating horses to the bridle is just a wonderful thing for all of us to explore. And I think the basis of that starts with having a good understanding of the functional anatomy. What in the world are you affecting? Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, there are 101 or 100,000 different techniques um, for teaching or in educating horses, but we do have a foundation in functional anatomy that we can always leap off from. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So thank you. Yeah, no worries. All right. Sidetrack there. Little rabbit hole. Well, that's okay. It's not really a sidetrack. It all goes like perfectly. Um, so, so I wanted to come back to that patrosal bone. Okay, because the uh, I'm going to bring my my skull up again. I'm spotlight you. So the patrosal bone is actually a bone that is a part of a of a larger bone right here called the the temporal bone. And that temporal bone is the upper border of the horse's TMJ. So all of a sudden, now the hyoid is absolutely 100% directly attached to the TMJ. <laughs> so, which is the, 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 you know, grand central station for, for all of our nervous system. It's the gyroscope of the horse's um, body. So if I put the skull together, you will see, here's the patrosal bone, which is a part of the larger temporal bone, which is the upper part of the horse's TMJ joint. Actually, the bottom would move, not the top. Yes. There you go. So that's how the hyoid is directly linked to the 
to the TMJ, okay? So um, can we go back to the uh, PowerPoint? Yeah, go for it. I'm just realizing that I put that link in only to you and I, and I didn't put it into everybody else. So. <laughs> okay. I'm going to come back to the PowerPoint. Okay. And um, again, this is just the, uh, a review slide of the muscles that we had talked about that were connected to the basohyoid um, and connecting to the sternum and the shoulder. So the sternohyoid and the sternothyroid. Now there are many, 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 many other muscles that are really important. These are two that are primary and they're very interesting, which is why I've highlighted them. But they, again, there are many, many other important muscles here, like the pterygoid muscles and so forth. So oh, um, it looks like the sternohyoid and the sternohyoid are like, kind of pulling the bottom of the swing, whereas the muscles that are going to be attaching the top of the hyoid are kind of counterbalancing that. It's an interesting counterbalance, isn't it? Yeah, and they're, they're kind of forked. They always kind of remind me of a, of a, a, a snake tongue. You know who who who's, has a really good graphic is Pam. Oh, she's coming back. She has a oh, great awesome. story for Pam us. Pam has great. <laughs> Uh, visuals of the hyoid and and the um, muscular attachments and she did a lot of work with um, Dr. Uh, Carrie Ridgway um, so, so she's just she and Diane are a, a wealth of information yeah. super cool people yep, they're coming back in October <laughs> yeah I've been stalking their webinars as well okay so um, <laughs> The paired muscles insert on the basohyoid and the lingual process originating on the manubrium of the sternum, which is the little cartilage part of the front cranial portion of the, of the sternum. Um, and it causes retraction and depression of the tongue. So that's just what we were talking about with the bit. So if, they are, if they're depressing and retracting their tongue to protect their palate, they then are using this muscle in a way that we really would prefer him or her not to be using it. And that will, I'm going to link this and building a case as we start talking more about um, educating horses to the bridle. Um, and one of the roadblocks to horses releasing their jaw or their TMJ. Um, again, uh, the next muscle is the omohyoid. Again, it's a, it's a paired muscle inserting on the basohyoid and lingual process, originating on the subscapular fascia under the scapula itself, down by the scapulohumeral joint, and it also causes retraction of the tongue. Okay. All right. Hence the thick underneck muscles that we see, yeah? It can be, absolutely. Another thing that we see with that bulge at the base of the horse's neck, um, comes from the posture in which the horse is carrying itself. So when we look at the cervical spine here, and most of my drawings are done by Susan Harris, who I just adore. Um, mm. She's such an amazing artist. I'm very grateful to her for uh, what she, she does in general all over. Um, but she, this is a, a Susan Harris drawing. Um, is we know that the horse has a, a slight S shape 
to its cervical um, spine. And that slight S shape can come in various degrees, meaning some horses have a more accentuated cervical shape to its spine. Some horses have a straighter neck, but in general, they all have a S shape. And horses that have a very accentuated S shape, where the, the base of the neck is very deep and very long, that posturing of the neck, either because uh, it's being asked to move in that way or because that's its anatomical arrangement from birth, if that lower curvature is very accentuated, that can also give the appearance of horses that have that big dip at the base of the neck. So that, that, that was something that I learned in my research at the university because I studied the neck and what I was interested in was what, how, how do the muscles develop in the neck in turn, as it relates to the posture in which the horse uses its neck. So when the horse uses its neck in a particular kind of way, it will have a very characteristic muscle patterning that indicates that the horse is using itself well. Or if the horse is being ridden away in a way that um, isn't a good posture or a healthy posture, it will develop other types of uh, muscular developmental patterns. So uh, the way that the muscles develop, it tells a story of how the horse is using its anatomy, either for its benefit or not for its benefit, or based upon a pathology or an injury so that the horse is protecting itself in a particular way. We can also see certain developmental patterns because of that. And it's, it's easy to look at muscles in isolation, but that's not, a, that's not the reality. Everything works in relationship to one another. So it's, it's better to look at patterns than it is individual muscles. Mm -hmm. So in that research at the university, I was looking at the sternocephalicus and the brachiocephalicus as muscles that get overdeveloped. Um, for instance, if the horse is being ridden in absolute elevation or hollow or what have you. But uh, what, we, what we learned in our research was it had more to do with the actual posture than it did the, the development of the muscles, which I find very, very interesting. Because if the horse inverts, these muscles are actually getting more elongated as opposed to hypertoned. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's super, super interesting. So, yeah. And there'll be tons more research done on that. And, and that, that research was a, a long time ago. But, you know, it, it, it was a real eye-opening, eye-opener to me. So, um, yeah. It, so much of the outward appearance of the horse that we see is, is a byproduct of how the bones are arranged or how the horse is using its anatomy. So um, I'm always looking at, at, at muscle patterning. It's not the answer to everything, but it can be a wonderful indicator of certain movement patterns. And it can, you can really see a story in, in how, how the muscles are developed. And then, of course, over time, if they continue to use the muscles in that way, we start to see those changes on a bony level, which mm. is what Pam Diane are seeing. So once we start seeing that, we know that that pattern's been going on for a pretty, pretty long time, time. or they were born in that way. 
So sorry, I got totally off track again. That's okay. <laughs> that was that was good. <laughs> I'll come back. Okay, so um, the cervical spine. So we're going to move from the hyoid. I showed. I just showed how it how it connects then to the to the TMJ. Even though I'm not going to talk about the TMJ, just know that it is also incredibly important. And we're going to kind of skip over the TMJ, and now we're going to start looking at the AO joint or the atlanta occipital joint, and then the next joint, which is the AA joint or the um, uh, atlantal axial joint. So just to give a quick, a, a brief background, horses have seven cervical vertebrae. They, they form a shallow S shape. Um, the vertebrae uh, are very important because they, they protect the spinal cord. So they've got the, the main uh, spinal cord running through it and then um, there's a foramen that come off the side where all the peripheral nerves exit and enter to go to Grand Central Station here at the brain. Um, and I, I believe, it is my belief that the neck is the most misunderstood uh, part of the horse and, because it's a part of the horse that gets just terribly abused. Yeah. Again, which is what a study in functional anatomy is good so that, that you, you are not taking the, 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 the horse's body into places that it really shouldn't repeatedly go, which we see in a lot of different um, horsemanship styles, let's say. Um, the neck is one of the most mobile structures in the horse's body, um, along with the tail. Um, but the neck is in incredibly mobile. And where every single one of those those bones come together, or cervical vertebrae, neck vertebrae, uh, that form, they all form their own joints. So when you're bending your horse's neck, it's not bending as one single unit. You're, you're looking at really eight different joints in, in totality when, when we're looking at bending the neck. And sometimes horses overbend at certain joints and not bend at certain joints at all. But what we're really looking for is slight, soft articulations through all of those joints. But we're gonna be looking at two joints in particular now. So we're gonna can, be I, can I just clarify, um, Jillian, we're talking about moving at different bones as opposed to different joints because each of the vertebrae has multiple joints. Exactly, so if you just look at it, there's five, right? But we're just, going to say it's we're going to look at it as a whole just one lump it into one joint but yes okay. we have the okay. set absolutely okay so here we go um this is a picture showing the base of the horse's skull and i'll i'll bring this the skull up here in 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 a second the very top of the skull that's where we commonly refer to that as, as the pole of the horse, okay? And then the base of the horse's skull, you, you will see that there are these two large condyles and there's a big hole in the middle. Well, that big hole is, is the, the foramen, the foramen uh, where the spinal cord enters into the, the brain. Okay, now these two great big condyles, they're very important articula, articular uh, surfaces or articulating surfaces. So whenever I say the word articulate, it just means where two bones come together. 
Um, and these condyles are our important articular surfaces because this is where the first cervical vertebrae articulates or comes together with the skull. Um, sometimes the skull in, from certain camps of people, they actually refer to the skull as the first vertebrae in the body. Um, so it is sometimes labeled CO. And this is what I love about Manolo Mendez's work because he, he taught me how to use a cabasson. And he always talks about the skull as being the first vertebrae. And, and he has such impeccable feel and timing. And, and how he uses a cabasson is so kind because he's so subtle in, in directing the skull on the atlas. And just by that, that slight correct feel and direction, he can produce a lateral flexion at the pole or at that articulating area between the skull and the first vertebrae called the atlas. And we're gonna look at we're gonna look at that in depth now. Oh, actually I'm gonna just uh, um, I'm gonna stop my share real quick and I'm gonna pull up the skull one more time so that you can see. This top part is what's referred to as the pole. And here are the condyles that you just saw in the drawing. We got two very large condyles. They have very large gliding articulating surfaces. And this is where the spinal cord then enters the brain um, in, the, in the brain case. And here is the side, a side perspective of, of that as well. Two occipital condyles. So the pole itself is, is a projection of bone from which particular skull bones do they come from? Oh, you're going to challenge my, my anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> I think these are the temporal bones, but I could okay. be wrong. Okay. I can't remember. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly which cranial bones these are a part of. I'd have to grab a cranial sacral book and. Okay. And no worries. Um, but when we see, and just as, a, you know, when we see a bony projection like that, we know we have a lot of leverage because of the height. Um, and we also have a pole, which is easy to find if you just take your fingers and go to the back of your skull and you feel the bony ridge. It's above the dip. So if you follow the ski slope down, you'll nod your head and come to your Atlanta occipital oh, joint. Yeah. But the the go back up and right there that's our pole and it's a much flatter right it's yeah. up here because we're not hanging our 40 pound head off at the end of a three foot lever arm horizontally but yes but we yeah, have a pole too <laughs> that's neat i never knew that yep. and, and i suppose it's because we're vertical and not horizontal that that's not as um prominent right uh, because when we look at the back of, 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 of this, ox, ox, like the occipital crest here on both sides, this is where the nuchal ligament attaches. And, and I, I think it's, it's hard to conceptualize just how large the nuchal ligament is. 
and that it's two cords, parallel cords wrapped in fascia, and that it, it attaches to this entire surface area at the back of the horse's skull, which is amazing to me. Um, it tells you how, how important it is, too, and how much, because, you know. Strength. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's an incredible I think everything is cool and incredible. I know. I'm going to have to show you the pony that Joyce has that has the nuchal ligament still. It's the, it's the axial spine with the nuchal ligament still attached. And you can see the lamellar and the, and the I always forget, funicular. Yeah, sorry. You have you, you, you have I, I do. I do. I, okay, keep going and I'll find the picture. <laughs> keep going. Okay, sorry. I'm getting okay. geeked out again. All right. So back to, back to the PowerPoint. All right. So the first cervical vertebrae is what is referred to as the atlas. The top, top picture or both pictures are looking at the atlas from above. So that's a dorsal view or a dorsal perspective. Um, the atlas is sometimes referred to as C1 or cervical vertebrae number one. And it has a very specialized shape that is very different than the rest of the cervical vertebrae. And that is because it produces a very specialized movement. Um, I will show you here one more time. Okay. Here is the atlas, okay? And this is looking at the atlas from above. This and this is what's referred to as the wing of the atlas. So if you hear someone talking about the wing of the atlas, that's what they're referring to. But more importantly, I wanna bring your attention to the cranial surface of the atlas. So anytime I say cranial, it just means that it's in the direction of the horse's head. And you'll notice that there are two large condyle areas. And these two large um, concave areas articulate with the condyles of the horse's skull. Where the atlas comes together with the skull, that is what is referred to as the atlanto-occipital joint. And again, because this has such a specialized shape, it produces a very specialized motion that is really, really important to us um, as riders because it is here that lateral flexion takes place. And we're going to look, look at that now with more depth. Okay. Then to go back to this and go back here. Let me show this. Okay. Oops. All right. Um, again, these are great pictures from Susan Harris. The, the, the first graphic shows the skull, and it shows the atlas connecting to the skull, and that produces or it builds what is known as the atlanto-occipital joint. Sometimes it's, it's just referred to as the AO joint. So again, the AO joint or the atlanto-occipital joint is located between the occipital condyles of the skull and the atlas. Together they form the AO joint. Again, what's 
What's important about this joint, and I can't emphasize this enough, not only does vertical flexion happen here where the horse says yes, but this is also where lateral flexion takes place. Now, if you pick up a book and you start reading different training um, guides or manuals, this motion that takes place at the AO joint is called many things. Uh, sometimes it's called jaw flexion. Sometimes it's called lateral side bending. Sometimes it's called head twirling. Sometimes it's called stelling. Or sometimes people refer to it as the horse tucking the jowl or the mandible under the throat. All of those sayings refer to the movement that takes place at the AO joint. It's the only joint in the horse's body that the horse can move its head separately from the rest of its neck, meaning that the horse's neck can be absolutely straight and the horse can give a lateral flexion to the right and to the left while the rest of the neck stays straight. So the mobilization of this joint is necessary. I'm going to say that one more time. Correct movement at this joint is necessary for lateral bend through the body or when you want your horse to bend correctly and the axial rotation of the spine creating bend through the body. So again, mobilization of this joint is necessary for lateral bend and axial rotation of the spine creating correct bend through the body. I love, again, Manolo's analogy when he's working with a horse in a cavasson. If you think about the head as being the first joint, or he would say the engine of a choo-choo train, and you tie a rope to the top front part of that choo-choo train, and then you pull the engine and all the cars should follow. And you can make serpentines and all the cars will follow that choo-choo train. So if that choo-choo train, if that engine is off track, it's gonna create a disturbance throughout the rest of the cars. Or if you think about it with the horse, if you have crookedness or you don't have the right or correct articulation at the AO joint, it will throw the rest of the vertebral column off base. So like pearls on a string, if you pull one pearl, all the other pearls should follow. So when the horse is on an arc or a lateral bend, and it is correct, that is what your riding instructor means when they say you will see the corner of the horse's inside eye. Okay, should look something like this. The atlanto-occipital joint motion is what is commonly referred to as lateral flexion. Um, it was first extensively written about by uh, Francois Bochet, who was a, a French classical master, very controversial type of guy. Um, he referred to them as jaw flexions. Now, in the beginning, I thought, oh, you know, in all my infinite wisdom, Boucher is not correct because it is not the jaw that is flexing. We're looking at the AO joint. Oh, what a silly old Frenchman he must have been. But then what I realized is I, I have my, my Lusitano Gelding Ginobre. And when I would 
ask him to arc to the left, he would so beautifully articulate and give me a lateral flexion at the AO joint. But every time I went to the right, he would block me and he would jut his mandible towards me. And I, I, I couldn't get that same soft softening at the AO joint to the left as I did to the right. And I noticed he would jut his jaw towards me and then he would actually give me a, a, a side bend between C2 and C3. Well, out of my frustration, I stuck my finger in his mouth and he licked and chewed and he opened his TMJ and boom, the lateral flexion happened at the AO joint. So the lesson that Ginobre taught me that day was if my horse is locking in his mouth, the tongue, the hyoid, or the TMJ joint, he will not be able to soften at the AO joint into a lateral flexion. And so when Francois Boucher talked about jaw flexions, flexion is what throws us off. But what he realized is if the horse was not soft in the TMJ and in the, in the mouth, he would not be able to get a lateral flexion and the softening of the top line so that the horse could be shaped. So when a horse softens into lateral flexion, he releases any bracing patterns that he's holding in the muscles of his neck and top line. Hence, it is a movement that brings a horse into relaxation. You've maybe heard from other instructors that the horse must release his top line. This is one of one, this is one way that you can teach your horse to release tension in his top line. If he is not giving you a correct lateral flexion at the pole, it is because he's holding tension somewhere, or he has pain somewhere, or he's being blocked in his mouth because of a possible dental issue. When the horse softens into lateral flexion, during this movement, the horse will lengthen muscles on one side of his neck and engage others on the opposite side. That is where the, the start of lengthening the outside of his body on a bend occurs. So this needs to happen for the horse to bend correctly. If you're really talking about it happening throughout the entire spine. So these pictures I think are, are really cool uh, because the, the, the picture, um, the first two pictures are showing what a lateral flexion would look like if you were riding your horse. And the one with the skeleton, you can see that the mandible or the jaw of the horse just slightly tucks underneath the horse's throat latch. And that's where you would see the corner of the horse's inside eye. The next picture shows a correct lateral flexion. And when the horse is truly giving you a correct lateral flexion at the AO joint, the ears will stay on the same plane. That's a pretty good indicator that the horse is correct. And then and the, the picture, the photograph, is um, my mare, Arena, and she's just learning to soften slightly through the mouth, through the bridle, into a very gentle lateral flexion at the AO joint. And then there will be a little bit of bend through the rest of the neck, but you will notice that her nose does not bend beyond the point of her shoulder. Thank you. 
Thank you so, so much. And as, as I would want in my horse's neck right there. I, I, I'm, you know, this, this is such an important point for people to realize because so many people think that their horse is correctly bent when the nose is well past the point of the shoulder. And I, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that, that is so commonly done now. Yeah. So remember when I was saying that, uh, that horses, when they quote unquote bend through their cervical spine, that it happens through all of the joints. When a horse overbends, he's typically overbending between C6, C7, and the thoracic inlet, or between C7, T, T1, T2. Sometimes they call that breaking at the base of the neck. And what that's going to do is you lose your soft arc. And if you think about electricity, electricity travels gently on an arc. But if you have a, sh a sharp bend in a wire, it's going to create a, what's that called? A short, it's going to mm. short out. So if you overbend the base of the horse's neck, you're, you, you are, you, there's a short in, in the energy that's traveling through the horse's body. And when the horse overbends there, he, he cannot help but to put more weight through the outside shoulder, and then the horse will become crooked. There's a reason why straightness is higher in the training scale. That's because it takes time and patience to teach a horse how to correctly laterally bend through his body. If a horse is consistently toggled from side to side, I have heard that being described as a horse being suppled. Mm. That is not a supple horse. That is hypermobility. And anybody who does body work will know that anything that is hypermobile actually is a weak structure. That is just another form of roll curve, but it's lateral roll curve. Thank you. Um, and again, that's why we study functional anatomy so that we understand what we're asking the structure to do. So to hypermobilize, is actually creating weakness and you're not building the postural strength that is needed for the horses to carry us in balance or degrees of collection, which makes it easiest for them to carry our weight. Okay. And um, let me just, um, I think you've already addressed this, but somebody's asking, how does this affect the movement? Yes. So when this process begins, when the horse softens the tongue, the hyoid, the TMJ, and softens at the AO joint, what that offers the horse is the ability to start shifting the weight to the outside legs and to create a C curve through the body, which then allows the inside hind leg to step under and to the midline of the horse so that the horse can then bend and, and then the horse can laterally come into flexion. 
So that's what they mean when they say lateral to longitudinal. So the C curve turns into the horse going round over his back. Because without that bend, you won't have access truly to the inside hind leg. When the inside hind leg steps forward into the midline, that is, that is the time when the horse can bend more deeply into his joints. That's where he will store kinetic energy, and that's what he will spring up and off of and come round or over his back. Does that make sense? It does for me. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of, the th one of the things that I so often see, and you've touched on this, I just want to kind of expand it a tiny bit. Um, so many people get concerned about engaging the inside hind leg or having it step deeper under the body. And from my school, engagement is any time the hind leg is coming under the body and that disengagement is any time the leg is going behind the body. But let's not go down that track right yet. My point I'm trying to make is in order for the inside hind leg to step more deeply, the horse has to be able to hold the ground on the outside because that's what allows him to have the balance. And so, so many people get focused on trying to drive the inside hind leg under without recognizing the balance that's required on the outside of the arc to stabilize for the inside hind leg to step more deeply under. Perfect, that is perfectly said. And then what happens, what I see, is that the rider gets heavy on the inside rein that damn inside rain, if I had a dollar for every time my hand has been slapped on my shoulder. You pull on that inside rein, the horse overbends at the base of the neck, then the rider gets into the horse with their inside leg. The horse only does the neck in, and then he steps wide and stays straight in his body, and he just moves into a pseudo leg yield, which isn't doing anything for the horse. But I know that gets beyond the scope of this, Right. but I think... I think what we, what the, the, the take home from this is that in order to get a correct lateral bend, you must have correct motion here. And if the horse is, is tight, anxious, clamping the jaw, chomping the bit, bracing, it will be very difficult for him to be able to shape his body in this way. And, and to just add to that, the minute the ears aren't level, talk yes. about the minute the ears aren't, I'll, I'll let you say it. <laughs> yes, that, that is, you're, you're reading my mind. And, and, and the thing that I, I always loved about Mark Russell's uh, work, work and Manolo's is because they're, they're, they're always directly talking to this joint. In, this, in the structures of the head. But what, what Mark emphasized to me when I first met him was, I kept saying, well, I have to get the hindquarters. I have to get the hindquarters. He said, if you, if you have these structures soft in front, that's what gives you access to the hindquarters. And then you ride the horse forward. And that really resonated with me. And it is also true that if you do get the hindquarters, oftentimes you can also release these structures. And that's because of the neurology. If you get the sacrum functioning at the lumbosacral joint, that is on the same circuitry as the AO joint, which is the parasympathetic system, which is your cranial sacral system. 
but that takes us a little bit into into neurology and how 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 that's well, mapped within the for, body. For anyone who's interested in more on that, um, Dr. Stephen Peters. Um, talks about how we're sitting on the sympathetic part of the nervous system. We're sitting yeah, over the horse's back. So he's a great resource um, to learn more about that that effect on the nervous system and on the brain. Um, but the piece I was trying to um, go toward is that when those ears are not level, when those ears are now, the head is now tipped, which so many people do not pay attention to when they're doing their, their uh, um, groundwork. Um, that the minute that head is tipped, we're now loading a front leg and not accessing the hindquarters. Absolutely. So I'll just demonstrate this real quick, uh, that lateral movement at the AO joint. Um, so remember we have the concave surface and we have the condyles. These structures come together and sometimes it's easier to see this from the front. This is a horse creating a lateral flexion at the pole. Lateral flexion right, lateral flexion left. And if he had the skin and muscles and tendons and ligaments and ears, his ears would stay on the same plane as he produced a lateral flexion to the right and produced a lateral flexion to the left. But also notice that there's not that deep of a degree of flexion here, of side bending. And this is and without any ligaments, tendon, muscles, or anything like that. So this is probably more than. Absolutely. This is also is a joint where horses can flex and extend. And it actually is one of the joints that has the most flexion and extension in the body. So flexion and extension as well as side bending or lateral flexion. And so if we were to be technically correct, it would be a side bending movement, yes? That is correct. Side bending and a little flexion. Correct. There's when no pure, there's, right. You never have any pure one-dimensional movement. It's, but you have, so you have flexion, extension, side bending, and rotation. That's right. And if, if I were to be re really technical, when the horse flexes to the, to the right, there would be a slight axial rotation of the atlas away from the direction of bend. Very slight. So that's why sometimes if you put your hand on the wing of the atlas and your hand on the bridge of the nose and you ask the horse for lateral flexion, your palm will slightly soften because there's just that tiny, tiny little bit. An right. osteopath or chiropractor could talk more extensively about that. Yep. All right, now we're gonna get to your tipping here, Wendy. Oh, cool, oh, cool. <laughs> okay, but before we get to the tipping, let's talk about the next vertebrae. The next vertebrae is C2, or it's also referred to as the axis like C1 or the atlas, it has a very specialized shape because it too produces a very specialized movement. So C1 and C2 have specialized shapes for specialized movements. 
C3, C4, C5, C6, C7 have the same shape unless we have some sort of malformation, okay? So again, the second um, vertebrate is called the axis, um, and it is sometimes referred to as C2. Now, what's cool about this, uh, about this vertebrae is that this is the top part of the vertebrae. It has a tall dorsal process. But if you look at the front, it has this amazing gliding surface here and an amazing gliding surface here. And when you look at it from a lateral perspective, you see there's this projection here. This is called the dens, or sometimes it's called the thumb. And this articulates with the caudal portion of the atlas or the back part of the atlas. So now let's look at the back part of the atlas. It also has this incredible gliding surface. So when you articulate these two vertebrae together, if I try to side bend these two vertebrae, it's impossible. There is no side bending motion between C1 and C2. You'll have to be careful because sometimes some anatomy books will say that, that this is where lateral side bending happens. It doesn't. This joint produces a very different movement. This joint produces a rotation. Okay. So, or if you see your horse tip its nose, that is happening at this joint. So let's look at that with a little bit uh, more detail here. Okay, doot doot. All right, Bloop. All right. So where the atlas and the axis come together, that is the atlantal axial joint or the AA joint. This joint allows the horse to rotate or to tilt his head, which is very important. Because if the horse tilts his head here, he's moving those vestibular systems that live within that petrosal bone. And this is a movement that is very, very natural to horses. And he should have these, this motion possibility. It's just that we don't want him to do that when we're riding our horses on a bend because it will make them crooked, okay? So there is no side bending between C1 and C2. And this is what it looks like if you are riding your horse and your horse gets crooked or out of balance or you have the tendency sometimes to ride heavy on your inside rein or sometimes you try to bring the outside rein over the wither, it will cause the horse to rotate at the AA joint. So if the horse articulates at the atlantoaxial joint, the horse will twist his pole. If he twists his nose to the right, most likely he will throw his weight onto the left shoulder. If he twists his nose to the left, most likely he will throw his weight to the right shoulder instead of being balanced on a curve. 
or a C curve. This twisting creates muscle tightness if the rider is pulling, and it is often the result of crookedness or pulling and holding the inside ring. Horses will not, not travel straight on a curved line if they rotate the AA joint. And I know that gets confusing because when we hear the word straight, we think straight. The only way to get a horse straight is never to ride him straight. So this is what that looks like. Again, beautiful illustrations by Susan Harris. You will notice that the ears are not parallel in these drawings or in the photograph. So if I were to show you with the skull what that looks like. So Jillian, if a horse is, is restricted at the uh, uh, C1, AO, AO joint, okay. Mm -hmm. He's gonna basically resist the, the tucking of the jaw. We're gonna see him bulge his jaw or push on his jaw. Mm -hmm. But so the, the ear tipping, I, I guess I was a little ahead of you there. The ear tipping is really what's happening at the rotation of C1, C2. That's where the, okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I've just kind of lumped it all together into one thing. And this is great because you it's more specifically broken down into what the function of each of those joints is. This is awesome. And the other thing that will block this is teeth. If yes. they, you know, if they cannot articulate their jaw or they're being clamped down too tight with their jaw, because remember the jaw has to be mobile. It's their gyroscope. So that jaw has to be able to have anterior and posterior glide as well as lateral excursion and have balance. And so if that is off, or there's, I mean, we've seen horses that have asymmetry in their condyles. Some horses can uh, give a, a, a lateral flexion very well in one direction and not so much in another direction. Hypertoned muscles, problems in the hyoid. If, if they can't articulate it for any one of those reasons, they'll usually break between C2 and C3 in some way, either laterally or 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 vertically Got because it. it's that whole OAA complex is, is blocked for whatever reason. So there was a question from earlier, but I think it's, I'm going to ask it in a more generic way um, because they were noticing that one of the C1 bones that you showed was very asymmetrical, but the bottom line is there is no symmetry. I mean, we're all asymmetrical, right? So um, there may be a congenital defect in a bone that's going to cause some problems or does the asymmetry, we're all, nobody's perfectly symmetrical. Right. And that's called functional asymmetry. Right. right. So you just have, it's, it's something that, that we're, we're born with. We have all kinds of disparity, or I can't, what's that Disparities. word? Disparities. 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 Yeah. Disparities um, in, in leg and limb length. Um, or that could be a byproduct of a, of a very long standing pattern, maybe due right. to poor dental. Yeah. Yep, and this is where we go back to the Ecosoma folks, um, Pam and Diane, because they let us look at the bones of horses that have been um, composted so that we can see these asymmetries. And that's what we're going to follow up on Apollo, actually, is what we're going to do. Oh, cool. That is so yeah. cool. Well, okay. I remember when I was doing my research at the university, um, Dr. Sarah Weish wrote these, I just love her books. Um, 
she wrote the horse's muscles in motion, the horse's back in motion. Oh yeah. And remember those books? And she hand drew and she made, made the joints like mechanical units. Yeah. Just very, very good visuals. And in her book, she talks about, you know, the superficial muscles are like uh, the sand in the desert. They can shift and change pretty easily. But over time, those, those shifts and changes, or if there aren't changes, will have an effect on the deeper layer and the deeper layer. And over time, you'll start to see those changes in the actual bony structure. Right. So whether it, the horse is born with it or, or the horse through movement patterns or through pathology um, will accommodate um, whatever motion or, or no motion there is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm going to just show you what that looks like real quick. Um, it's, a, it's a little hard for me with a, only one hand. Usually in class, I have somebody help me here <laughs> on this part. Um, yeah, but we don't want him you, taking a dive here. That would be bad. <laughs> that would not be good. Okay. But when the horse articulates the AA joint, you get this motion. Can you see that? Yeah, because his nose is now coming toward and away from the camera. Yep. You get that motion. And you can see how the wings of the atlas are actually twisting along with it because that's where the rotation's occurring is at that joint because you're holding C2 still. Yep, we can totally see that. The, the the atlas is not slightly rotating away from the direction of the back. So I know that that AA joint is locked. From the front, it would look like this. Yep. Yeah, so just turn it sideways so we can see close, oh, close up where the, yep, just, can you bring it closer to the camera just the, from the pole to C2? We don't need the bottom of the skull. Yeah, and now do your rotation again. If you can yeah so so people can really see how the wings of the first vertebrae are moving because there's no movement between the uh, AO joint it's only happening at the AA joint versus this excellent well done and now my muscles are tired yep no that's fine so um, do you know John Zahurik I don't oh he's the guy who created anatomy and clay yeah, yeah, we talked about that. I'm so going to do that class. Okay, so uh, he had, if I recall, this I got this from him. He's thinking that when you look at C2, you know how it has the dens, that that was actually originally part of C1 and somehow uh, converted, if you will, to be part of C2 because C1 is a very oddly shaped vertebrae. And if you look at all the rest of them, they all have the back part, you know, the ball, the ballish part. But what he's saying is that, that that somehow migrated from the first vertebrae to the second vertebrae, which isn't, you know, I mean, I, 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 I know it's a really interesting theory, and I'm not sure if he has, um, um, you know, so long ago, it's the early 2000s when we did those courses. So, um, but I've never forgotten that piece because it makes sense because nature's so conservative and all of the others have the ballish joint at the back of each vertebrae that it's yeah. like it just shifted over so that we could gain this incredible rotation. That's so interesting. Good a couple weeks ago, teaching in, um, where was it? New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, 
Samantha, she's, who is a Masterson Method instructor, she's great. She brought a um, giraffe vertebrae. Cool. (laughs) I took a bunch of pictures of it. I didn't put it in this PowerPoint, but I had both the giraffe C2 and the horse C2 together. And it was so interesting because if you look at the, to me, C2 looks like a queen with her collar. Mm, Yeah. But you'll, you'll notice that there is a, a valley here right so that tells you that there's only so much rotation that happens here but in the giraffe giraffe this isn't there and if oh. you look at how a giraffe moves its its head ah. when it's raising and licking it has so much more motion there and and i just find cross species comparison so interesting because it really tells you about their motion possibilities absolutely and i'm just always sure and this again is why this is so darned important because if you understand how the it it moves and how it's supposed to move, then suddenly you stop asking the body to do things that it's not it's not possible. Great for the body. Right. Absolutely. And this is the only joint design in the entire system that is this. Uh, I always talk about the tab in the hole, right? It's the Ooh, like only, only yeah. one that can do that. And so Hillary's done um, studies where they looked at the degree of movement in each of the joints and which plane of movement they had. And of course, this is the, 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 has the most rotation of any of the joints in the spine. Obvious because of the design, it's the only one that's the tab in the hole. Yeah. And you know, and it's, it's a horse shouldn't have movement there. It, it, you know, it's just that we're, that's not what we're looking for when we are, are training them. Right. I and mean, if you basic. watch a horse eating grass underneath the fence, he better have movement there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they're very good at that. Very, very. Very, very good at that. My, my tubby little Lusitano girl, she, she's very masterful at that. Yeah. Well, and also okay. reaching back to get a fly, there's got to be that rotation as well as the side bend, right? So it's got its purposes. Just when we're riding, it's maybe not the best. Oh, so somebody did ask. I just saw, I get so sidetracked. So keeping the airs level is important, question mark. Yes. It's an indicator that the horse is giving a correct softening at the AO joint as opposed to the horse tilting and articulating the AA joint. Now, it, 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 it can be a little, you have to really watch because a horse can also be jutting his jaw and giving you a side bend between C2 and C3. And I've seen people think that the horse is soft, but the horse isn't. So um, one of my teachers once used this phrase that just cracks me up. You have to almost be a pit bull on a pork chop about this, right? You really want to focus on teaching a horse to release the jaw so that you can be granted access to this motion possibility at the AA joint. So when you educate a horse to the bridle, you're, you're, you, the first thing that, that Mark taught me and what Manolo taught me is that softening at that AO joint. And in Mark's work, it was just a slight lift or the French school, just a slight lift with that bit in the corner of the mouth, just to release the tongue in the AO and the TMJ. 
and then very gently guide the joint in the AO joint into the lateral flexion. So that's why we teach them that very early on so that if in the training process, the horse gets very anxious and nervous, you can stop and soften the jaw and soften the AO joint again. And it really helps to hit the reset button. It's okay. Find your relaxation. Find your release. Now let's play again. Oh, you're getting tight. You're getting braced because you're anxious. I'm not communicating or this is hard in, in a way that you're, you're, you're having a hard time understanding or maybe you have a physical something that's bothering you. Let's stop. Let's find that release and that relaxation again. So we try to put that in right away. So instead of me focusing on always, quote unquote, disengaging the hindquarters, I spend more time here because I know that that's my gateway into the parasympathetic mode. That's my gateway into helping horses find balance. Anytime a horse is out of balance, he's going to go sympathetic, right? So that's, that's an, an important uh, part of the horse's anatomy to be very familiar with. And last but not least, I have a little developing your eye page. Oh, yay. Just so you can start to see. Um, so that you can see which horses are twisting and you see the horses that are softening the jaw and softening into a lateral flexion. So there are three horses that are twisting. And then there are three horses that are softening the mouth, the jaw, and the AO joint. So the horse in the upper right, or the left, the gray horse, you can see the rider pole trying to take the horse to the left by using the right rein, and that is tilting the horse's um, head. Um, again, on the bottom, but below it, the chestnut horse, the horse's ears are tilted and his nose is tipping to the right and his weight is falling on the left shoulder. The horse up in the middle is very gently softening the jaw and going round through the body. So that's a, an example of an elementary lateral to longitudinal uh, posture. The horse in the middle on the bottom is do doing a beautiful job of staying up in the shoulder giving a nice lateral flexion. The ears are on the same plane. The horse is engaging deep from behind. The horse in the upper right, the rider is in a shank bit. By the way, you cannot teach lateral flexion in a shank bit. The mechanics of the bit does not work that way. So when the rider takes the left rein against the neck, it tips the horse in the opposite direction. The horse then falls on the right shoulder. And uh, the horse in the bottom right is working in a lindell and a bridle as they transition to the bridle work, just looking for a soft lateral flexion of the, of the jaw, which frees the top line, which frees the shoulder, goes all the way back, and then is given access to the inside hind. So that's all I have for you guys. That is so awesome. I love the, the examples at the end so people can see the differences. I think it's great. 
Yeah, I think comparison, I mean, that's certainly how I have to learn is by looking at comparisons um, and contrast. And, yeah. then, and it, it, it helped develop my eye. But then if I know the anatomy behind what's creating the motion, then, you know, it, it just becomes more, more clear. I can have the x-ray vision to see, okay, that's what's happening with the structure. And then that's what's giving me the outward appearance of the, of the motion that I'm seeing. So I will find that I will find the photos of that skeleton. Um, it, it was a prep to save the ligaments. Um, it has its own little story about it. Um, it's not, oh, man, that's cool. um, but I will find it and I'll send you the pictures because you can see the, and the other thing is you can see the two sides of the nuchal ligament because so many people tend oh. to think it's a single structure as opposed to yeah. a parent structure. So I'll, I'll Ooh, I love that. Yeah. I have one other quick story just to, oh, great. to give an example of the importance of, of the releasing of the, the tongue. Because remember, the tongue's a muscle. The tongue, the hyoid, and the TMJ into the AO joint. So for anybody who studied with Mark, you'll get a kick, kick out of this. Mark would, would wait on a horse for an hour if he had to. So he would have, on the ground, he'd have the outside rein and he'd have the inside rein. And very gently, he would just lift ever so slightly that inside rein by thinking his palm up. And he would just wait to the, for the horse to release the mouth and the TMJ. He would just wait. And then and he would, the, the moment that the horse released the mouth and the TMJ, he would just soft, very slowly soften. Well, for anybody who, took lessons from Mark, sometimes he, do, he would just do this for 45 minutes. He'd just stand there and just wait on the horse. And then he would tell a story that he thought was very funny and, and he'd crack himself up. And then everybody would laugh, not at the story, but they'd laugh at him because he was cracking himself up. He was such a funny guy. Well, so, so in later years, I, I came, uh, became good friends with one of his, his key students, uh, Dr. Jen Miller. And, and Jen said to me, oh, that would just drive me nuts that Mark would wait that long for the horse to release the mouth. If he would just ask the horse to shift the weight off the sternum, he'll release his jaw immediately. And I, and I went, oh, my God. So I went home and started playing with that. And I would ask the horse to release the mouth and the jaw. And I'd wait. And there would be no response. And then I would just gently rock the horse off the sternum. Diane Sept is also queen of this rocking horses off their sternum and the, by golly the minute I asked the horse to shift the weight off the forehand into that sternum the horse always will release the mouth and the TMJ and I realized that when the horse is falling forward into the forehand he's locking that sternohyoid muscle so if your horse is trotting along too fast, too quick of a tempo, too much on the forehand, he's going to be locking his jaw. But if you, if you can teach the horse another reason why a, a correct half hold is important because it gives a horse that moment to rebalance off the forehand and then the release of the jaw, the mouth and the AO joint comes. But if they're, you know, forward, 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 and you're just driving them forward and then that sternum all these structures will be will be locked and that's why so many of these horses break between c2 and c3 
So that was a, I always, that was just a huge aha moment uh, for me from, from Dr. Jen. So I, you know, appreciated that so, so much. And I thought, well, gosh, if, if Mark was here today and, 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 and saw that he just, he'd have a blast with that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a really good point that we need to honor the principles, but that doesn't mean we can't find more expedient ways to make it clear. Um, yes. And Arthur Cottis, I, I've spent many hours with him and he would say, take your time, but don't waste your time. And so, I love that. yeah, and it's exactly that because, you know, with the Spanish, when he was there, time was the, the thing they had the most of um, because it was a state run institution. It wasn't privatized like it is now. So they would take whatever time the horse needed. But in that luxury of excessive time, one can get into inertia of not doing something that could expedite the situation in a way that clarifies it. And I think that's with the sternum, you're just clarifying that to the horse so that you're expediting things in a positive way to make the connections clear. It's like a light bright. I like to use that analogy. Like you, you, you know, you put your light bright here and here and here and all of a sudden the picture starts to come together. Like, I love that when that happens. And I, I have certainly, you know, have, wasted my time i guess by i i have been afraid of asking for too much right or 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 not getting it right and um so like with my my horse ginobre like i waited too long to canter him more because i was i was just afraid i wasn't going to do it right and 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 i remember manolo saying to me as well he said you can go too fast with the horse but you can also sometimes go too slow right and what's where's the middle right we're back to where's the middle again we're back, we're um, back to the middle. um somebody um, asked do you have a picture or something that you can show where the horse is breaking at c2 c3 um it's hard to do I, with the skeleton because you have to break where there isn't any bones. <laughs> yeah, and I, I didn't break. I didn't bring my third cervical up to my office, um, and I do have a picture buried somewhere on my computer. I'm afraid it would take me too long to do. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy. The pole won't be the highest point. In other words, if you look at the and uh, um, Jillian, I don't know if you talk about relative pole height versus absolute pole height. Um, <laughs> But yes. relative pole height means on the line of the arc, if here's the head, the pole is high. But if it's C2, it's going to be high here in the neck. And no matter where this head is, this point is higher, not this point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so Amy Chapman is just asking if that what the, you described with the sternum is ro called rocking them off the sternum. I'm, I'm sure it probably has a lot of names. Um, That's what it is. Yeah. Just getting them to rock the weight off the sternum, which this is where they live naturally, is on, is on the sternum. Because when the horse grazes, he's down 18 hours a day. He has that incredible nuchal ligament that supports the heavy weight of the head and the neck. So he doesn't have to use a lot of muscular effort. And he's a little front end heavy. And, and what we don't realize is that when you're a little front end heavy, if you notice a horse grazing, he'll take a step and he'll take a step you know, take a step. He, he's kind of, he's, he's creeping forward as he grazes. That's the most natural thing in the world for a horse to do because it also helps with his digestion, digest, 
digestive process. So when we have a horse in a cross tire, we're getting him ready, we're riding him. Again, because they're front end heavy, it's the most natural thing in the world for them to do that. But if we, if, if, if we want them to start shifting their weight back, we have to teach them to shift a little bit more equally the weight onto, onto the hindquarters. And, and probably a Frisian horse is where that, because they're designed for driving, to see that turkey breast sternum is so obvious. If, if you want to mm -hmm. see an example of kind of the sternum really protruding forward, um, a lot of Frisians have that just because of the genetics and the, and the style, what they were raised to do. Um, all right, well, we've come to the end of two hours. <laughs> it's easy to do. It's, it's really easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it's really fun and, and uh, uh, I appreciate the ability to kind of wander off these other little, little bits and pieces. I, like I said, I will find those photos or I can just go photograph it again because it's up in the barn. Um, that skeleton lives in the barn. Joyce actually got the leg preps that are beautiful, but the, the axial skeleton um, and, and, so I'll just tell you the story of it really briefly because the prep was done at MSU and it was a new prep and so Joyce had ordered it and then when she was supposed to get it, it disappeared. The skeleton disappeared, the body. And um, I, this was prior to 2008 because I was organizing four-day workshops at Hillary Clayton's called the Dynamic Horse. So we'd go up there and I'd have 20 people and we'd listen to Hillary for several days and wander around the lab. Well, this one time I went up, I think it was the last time actually, um, somebody said, we found Joyce's skeleton. And um, when I got it, it was in a pla black plastic bag and it was found in a stairwell. And, it, in a and, it, and the problem is that it wasn't left straight. So it's in a permanent bend, but the beauty is you can see what happens in the ribs when a horse goes into correct bend because the ribs, the design of the ribs, okay do it with my fingers it's like uh, it's like your venetian blinds they they kind of feather together on the one oh, side and they expand on the other so i can actually take pictures of the ribs and show you and of course the ribs at the front are, are broader and thicker than the ribs at the back which are very tubular and this horse had a had a thoracolumbar vertebrae we lost one of the the ribs that came off of it but um but you can see the nuchal ligament. So I'll take some photographs of it. It's kind of, so cool. I would love to see that. It's really, really cool. Um, maybe I'll bring it in the car when I come down in November. <laughs> we're, we're driving, so I can, but we got to give it a name. Uh, it's a, well, our skeleton is Mrs. Wiggles because she's not very steady. So okay, she, she, yeah. Oh, somebody's like, yes, bring it. It's the coolest thing because the nuchal ligament is still rubbery, you know, and it's like, it's, it's fascinating, but it, um, it, it's such a fabulous teaching tool. It's really it is awesome. Oh, yeah. please do bring it. Okay. I'll, I'll try. Well, to I totally, totally geek out on it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody for, for joining us. And thank you for those that, you know, I mean, it, was a little difficult with the scheduling but of course this is going to go up on the surefoot equine youtube channel tell all your friends subscribe to the channel because we have some phenomenal guests coming up in the next two weeks and then i'm going to take a break um uh, from the 16th i'm going to have becky tenges on the 16th and then i'm going to take a break until um the, after the first weekend in October, I've got a bunch of things going on that I need to focus on. But we have Bob Belker coming back. We have the Equisoma ladies 
back and um, I'm just I'm just continuing to schedule guests and I'm sure we'll get Jillian back for another one maybe we'll do one when I'm down there like we could do a joint one. Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> I have a little bourbon and we'll just okay <laughs> maybe we should just record it and not do it live and then we can see if we can broadcast and i'm getting really loose <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you everybody and thank you again julian it's been a blast as always so take care and have a wonderful holiday weekend okay. yes you too bye everybody bye